Hello, my name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those that are new, I just briefly want to mention that what I'm about to share, I am sharing, seeking to speak as the oracles of God, as stated in 1 Peter chapter 4. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. So I am seeking in this message to allow the Spirit of God to rise up through me to speak what he would be saying to you who have a foreknowledge of God has come across this message and to the corporate body of Christ and whoever else is an audience or watching this message. This message will also be in podcast with just audio as well as video. So I seek for God to lead me in his word and to a particular chapter which I often received by the casting of lots because I have faith in the sovereignty of God. I don't do this as a light thing, as a game. If I am walking in the light, as he is in the light, living a godly and a holy life, these things work very powerfully when we have faith in the sovereignty of God. Sometimes God leads me other ways into the word of God. In fact, this time I will be sharing from a passage which I was burdened to share from, which was not by the casting of lots. I was burdened to share a message on each of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. But I also will be sharing a particular passage which I have received a number of times recently by the casting of Lot, where there's an equal possibility of any chapter from the Word of God, the Bible. And that is from Zechariah 13, which I will seek to incorporate also into this message in regards to the church of Pergamos. So first we will read the passage in Revelations chapter 2, beginning at verse 12, which is a message by the Spirit of God to the church of Pergamos. And we read, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath a sharp sword, with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where Antiochus was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them, that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak, to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that tell the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. 
I just briefly want to pray before I begin this message. Almighty One, the Almighty One, true God, Elohim, Lord Jesus Christ, I ask that you would be glorified in this message, that I would be hidden, that people would be touched by your spirit so that they are pointed towards who you are in all your glory, in all your majesty, in all your love. I ask that you would grant utterance that your word would rise up in me, that I may speak out of the Spirit of God those words that are from you, and that my words and my ways would recede before yours, Lord. May your word have free course and be glorified in all the earth to wherever this word goes forth. In Jesus' name, amen. I am also going to be speaking on Zechariah chapter 13 because I believe that passage is very important in relation and does fit in in relation to the message that I am bringing on the church of Pergamos. And so right now I just want to turn to Zechariah 13 and this is a very mysterious chapter but God has granted me understanding by his spirit to understand the meaning of that chapter. So as I read it, you might find it rather mysterious. And so we're going to Zechariah chapter 13. In that day, there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. And it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, then his father and his mother that begat him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live. For thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord, and his father and his mother that beget him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophets shall be ashamed, every one of his vision. When he hath prophesied, neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. But he shall say, I am no prophet, I am a husbandman. For man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, save the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third part shall be left therein. 
and I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them, and I will say, It is my people. And they shall say, The Lord is my God. Before I get into this passage on Zechariah, I want to go back to the message to the church of Pergamos, as this other passage is something that will be understood in the context of what I am sharing in regards to the church of Pergamos. Now in verse 12 we read, and to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, these things saith he that hath the sharp sword with two edges. Now before I get into explaining various things in regards to the church of Pergamos, I briefly want to give you another understanding here. In previous messages I have brought out the meaning in the book of Revelations as I am planning to go through various chapters over time in the book of Revelations and minister the word of God. I have pointed out that in the book of Revelations, the Holy Spirit of God is described often as the seven spirits of God. For example, we have in Revelations chapter 1, verse 4, the description of God in his three triune aspects of personage. And it says this, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And then we have a similar description, for example, in Revelations chapter 5. Now, this is in verse 6, and it says, and I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. You can liken these seven spirits of God, not as to seven individual entities of personage, because that's not the case. This is a description of the one true Spirit of God in his seven aspects of perfection. You can liken it to the colors, the seven colors in a rainbow that make up the full spectrum of light in all its glory and brightness of white light. And I have in previous passages mentioned what I believe through understanding by the Spirit of God, these seven spirits of God are. The first and foundational one is the perfection of the Spirit of God and the fear of the Lord, which I have given messages on in the past. And out of that springs forth the perfection of the Spirit of the Lord in holiness. The perfection of the Spirit of the Lord in love or grace or mercy, actually mercy from which is perceived love that is out of the holiness of God. But it's the perfection of the Spirit of God in mercy 
In the Old Testament, mercy has the understanding of grace included. In the New Testament, there's a separate understanding where mercy is the forbearing of the judgment and grace is the favor that goes beyond the mercy with favor. The perfection of the Spirit of God in love. That's the third one. The next one is the perfection of the Spirit of God in faith. And then it goes on, and the next one is the perfection of the Spirit of God in oneness, the perfection of the Spirit of God in unity, and the perfection of the Spirit of God in wisdom. Now, I'm not going to go into that here. I'm just describing a few things here in context. In relation to the Church of Pergamos, what stands out is the perfection of the Spirit of God in holiness. Now there is another passage of scripture which is in Isaiah 11:2 in relation to this. And I'm going to turn to that right now. We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2. Isaiah 11 verse 2. And we read in describing Jesus Christ and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. There is only seven mentioned there, but the Septuagint translation, which is a very accurate translation of the Old Testament from older manuscripts called the Vulgar. These older manuscripts were very accurate, and with the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, we also have all the dates lining up with all the clay tablets that have been unearthed, and there's multitudes of them that describe the dates and the reigns of kings, and this is not from the Bible, but everything in the Septuagint lines up and fits in with those dates, confirming its accuracy. Now, this is from the Vulgar, and then we have, you know, the Masoretic, which is the King James, and that is also very accurate. It's just that there is a few discrepancies like this one here. And Isaiah 11, 2, the Septuagint has seven perfections of the Spirit of God described as opposed to six. And the one that's missing in the King James is the spirit of godliness. Now, that could have something to do with translating from the Hebrew into the Greek. But I thought I would point out that what we want to describe here in the book of Revelation in relation to the church of Pergamos has to do with the perfection of the spirit of godliness. And as I've been going through these churches, I've been aligning one of these perfections of the spirit of God with those churches. Because as it mentions in Revelations chapter five, when it's describing Jesus Christ, and it says that he stood as a lamb as it had been slain. And out of that, there were seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God going forth into all the earth. The word of God says that he searches to and fro throughout all the earth. His eyes go throughout all the earth, searching for those whose heart is perfect towards him. And there's these seven aspects of perfection that I believe are involved in that. Now, the description in Isaiah 11, 2 is a little different. For example, it describes the spirit of godliness. To me, that's equated with the spirit of holiness. And so, in this book here, of Revelations chapter 3 in regards to the church of Pergamos. I just want to give you that understanding as we go into this. Now, Pergamos means much marriage. 
It also means a tower, which implies a stronghold. And Pergamos was a very prosperous city. It had a beautiful library, great intelligence, ah, as far as people that were learned that could read and so on, all of these things. And yet we read here in this passage that it was in Pergamos where Satan's seat was seated. Now we know that also in Pergamos there was a great altar built to Zeus. And this altar was enormous. It was dug up by some German archaeologists and moved to Germany, actually. It's enormous size. Uh, you'll have to look it up yourself. I can't for a time go into the description of it in detail. But there were other gods that the Greeks worshipped that all had the symbol of the snake. And most of the gods under, under Zeus always had a symbol of a serpent with them. But not this one, because this was actually representative the absolute ultimate authority, which in this case is Satan himself, so he doesn't have to manifest himself with a servant being the very highest authority. And in this city, they required worship of the emperor. And so we find that Antiochus was martyred because he refused to do homage and worship to the emperor. And there was a great image in regards to this Zeus where they would put people inside the image and heat the image up with heat until the person baked to death like being in an oven. And this was moved over to Germany and was part of being there and was there when Hitler was there in power. Now I'm not going to go into anything more but we can sure see that there was great darkness in Germany under Hitler. But here in Pergamos, the church was commended because they held fast God's name against this demonic stronghold, which was the very seat of Satan. And they were commended. And Tibus was particularly commended. But the Lord says in verse 13, pardon, pardon me, 14, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. And he goes on here and describes this, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. And then in verse 15 it says, So hast thou also them that told the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, those that held the doctrine of Baal, they were holding the very same teaching that was used to corrupt the children of Israel. And we have reference to that in Numbers chapter 31, verse 8. Balaam, the false prophet in the previous chapters, back in Numbers 24, actually, was commanded to destroy Israel by putting a curse on them from the mountains. That's what the king wanted them to do. But every time 
the Spirit of God would come on him. He could only speak what the Spirit of God would give him to speak, and it was always a blessing. And this frustrated the king, but eventually Balaam found another way to conquer the children of Israel, and that was through corrupting them with their beautiful women of Midian. And so we read in Numbers 31.8, And they slew the kings of Midian, beside the rest of them that were slain, this is Israel, namely Evi, and Rechem, and Zer, and Hur, and Rebbe, five kings of Midian, Balaam also, the son of Beor, they slew with a sword. Now Balaam was the one that was commanded to curse Israel, but could not because the Spirit of God would cause him to only speak the words that were of God. And in Numbers 31, verse 15, we read this concerning all of this. After God brings judgment upon Midian. Now, why did this happen? It happened because these beautiful, very good-looking women from Midian came into the camp of Israel, and Israel was in contact with them. And the next thing you know, there's Israelites visit, visiting the Midianites and wanting to marry their women. And then there's the scene of, of, uh, of a plague that God brings on the nation of Israel where multitudes of them are dying because of this compromise with the children of Midian, because now there's men actually having relationships with these women that are compromised with idol worship. You have to remember that these nations often sacrifice children to demons in the fire. And in this case, the children of Israel are humbling themselves, humbling themselves and praying and seeking God because this plague is bringing terrible judgment upon them and is spreading wildly and rapidly. In the midst of their humiliation and repentance before God, a man goes into a tent with one of these beautiful women and has sexual relationships with her right in front of Moses and Phinehas, the high priest. Phinehas goes so filled with the anger of God that he goes into the tent and he puts a spear through both of them. And God says, because Phineas did that, that plague was stayed from the children of Israel. And so we read in Numbers 31.15, after this plague is stayed, Israel goes forth and conquers this nation and destroys all that God was calling them to destroy, but he did, they didn't say all... They saved certain people alive that they were not supposed to save alive. And so we read in Numbers 31, 15, And Moses said unto them, Have ye saved all the women alive? Behold, these caused the children of Israel, through the counsel of Balaam, to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, which means the opening. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Now this doctrine of Balaam involved prostitution. And, in the, and, and because you do this, 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 this thing of prostitution and worship this false god, you have an opening into the spiritual realm. This is basically a kind of, this is a very rough description of basically what was going on here. And so we read in Revelations here, that here we have this doctrine of Balaam again. Now the word Balaam has a specific meaning. It means, and I have the meaning right here, um, it, it basically means conqueror of the people. 
This is the meaning. Lord of the people, or he destroyed the people. And their doctrine was that they can destroy or conquer people through compromising them morally by committing fornication. And through fornication, getting them to join their idolatrous, idolatrous worship. They were called Balaamites or Nicolaitans, corruptors of the people. That's basically what the understanding of the word Balaam is. Victory over the people through corrupting them morally. And also, this is true of the other doctrine that they tolerated even though they took a stand against emperor worship. And that was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Several of the early church fathers, including Irenaeus and uh, Hippolytus and Ephanias and many others, stated that the deacon Nicholas was the author of this heresy of the Nicolaitans. And Nicol means basically victory in Greek, and Laos means people, victory over the people. Hence the word is lay conquerors or conquerors of the lay people. And the Nicolaitans believed also in basically the same thing. They believed in embracing sexual promiscuity, prostitution, and all of these things. It was almost an understanding of, of a God of love whose love had no integrity, that would condone that which is contrary to trustworthiness, that allows corruption because there's no integrity in the love. Now, having described these things to you about the church of Pergamos, I want to emphasize that God gives the answer to overcoming this very subtle, deceptive, and luring attack, spiritual attack on the body of Christ, on us as individuals and also corporately in this church, by emphasizing the sharp sword that comes out of his mouth. And this is where I really want to just briefly mention something that I te teach deeply on, and that is the character, the being of God. And my emphasis is on the fear of God. That is the root theme of the book I am writing, which is very in-depth. But what I want to point out here is that God is love. But what is love? The highest form of love that is described in the word of God, agape love, is more than just a feeling. It is the choice that always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice of gratification or fulfillment. This love is innate with integrity so that it is as a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that would be contrary to this perfection of love that always freely chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate fulfillment, which implies that such choices would have corruption in them. The integrity of God's love is the holiness of God. It is a love that is so pure 
that it is a blazing fire of judgment against all that is contrary to it. It is the defensive aspect of the being of God's love that allows God to contain unlimited power and unlimited life without being corrupted by it or without being dissipated by corruption because his being will not tolerate corruption. Love that is this pure will not tolerate corruption. It is therefore ultimately trustworthy. It is able to contain unlimited life and power and therefore is indicative that it is the very source thereof. And it is also able to contain unlimited life and power without corruption so that it can enlarge in greater and greater realms of creativity out of its expression of love into greater and greater realms of goodness and fulfillment. This love which is in the being of God is the holiness of God. It is the foundation from which springs forth God's creativity that was ultimately manifested in love that is so great that without contradicting the integrity of his love, he was able to assure to all creation that they could receive destiny and purpose and meaning that is everlasting and part of this ultimate creativity that's without corruption, which is his love. And that is in the fact that from the foundation of the holiness of God, God came forth to provide himself as a perfect atoning sacrifice so that we who through the indirect temptation of the physical realm repent and turn back to God could receive forgiveness of sins and be reconciled to God. It's because God loved you so much that he condescended and humbled himself to suffer more than you a mere creature and experience greater humiliation than you a mere creature so that you could be forgiven and be part of his family, his corporate bride in heaven forever that will go on in creative realms of expression and goodness that are ever enlarging without end. It says in the word of God that eye is not seen, nor is ear heard, neither is entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for them that love him. That is the sword of the spirit that is described here in Pergamos. It's a two-edged sword. The first edge is the holiness of God that I just described. The second edge is the grace of God or the mercy of God that I've just described. And these two edges are what makes up the love of God. You can describe the love of God another way. It is, you can see in all creation that everything is made out of negatives and positives. All the blood cells have negatives and positive. Everything holds together often by negatives and positive. But the ultimate manifestation, the ultimate negative, ultimate positive is God himself. The ultimate negative is the holiness of God, which is represented by the negative symbol in mathematics and electricity. It is a symbol of foundation that is perfect, that cuts off all that is corrupt. It is the integrity of God's love. And from that foundation springs forth 
the symbol of the cross, or the positive symbol in mathematics, or the plus symbol in electricity. And it is this symbol, this plus, this ultimate positive of the universe, which is who God is. A love that's so pure that he absorbed the judgment of all creation upon himself. without sin. And I could go into a great more detail in describing this, how the Son was always in union with the Father. Even on the cross, when he experienced being forsaken by the judgment of God, his faith was in total union with the Father in a state of selfless trust like an open hand. And it says in Romans 1-4 that by the spirit of holiness he rose from the dead because his spirit was in the state of selfless trust that was totally pure and without corruption in his trust in the Father. He never had an element of rebellion, of a fist against God in the midst of all that suffering. He only said, why? Because it was so overwhelming. It was not a why of doubt. It was a why of release. He commended his spirit unto the Father because he had full trust in the Father and therefore he conquered death by his own purity of being, of love. Because he loved the Father so much that he wanted to bring a corporate bride to the Father, to enlarge the Father in love, and the Father loved the Son so much that he was willing to release the Son to such a condescension so that he could experience the fulfillment of inheritance in a corporate bride that he could bring to the Father. This is a wonderful love message. There is nothing that is filled with more hope and more purpose and destiny and meaning than what I am sharing. And anything that would be less than this would not be God. God is this ultimate negative and positive that can assure destiny to creation. And if God could not assure destiny to creation because he could not assure forgiveness to those that repent, it would imply that he created a creation without purpose and meaning and would imply that he is imperfect. But God is ultimately trustworthy and there's nothing more ultimately trustworthy than a creator whose love is so great as I have just described that without violating the integrity of his love, he could still so love you and give you destiny and purpose. And so there's this sharp two-edged sword that's describing the church of Pergamos. And that is the secret to overcoming the attack of the enemy in our world that would compromise us with sexual immorality and corruption. And it is one of the main ways that this is happening in this hour because we are living in a society of abundance and of wealth. Like the church of Pergamos. And Pergamos means much marriage, and we're living in a world that is filled with divorce. As never before, the divorce rate is up in all the materialistic world. What did God say of Sodom and Gomorrah? It says in Ezekiel that the sin of Sodom was pride, abundance of bread, and idleness. And those are the things that are in our society that harden our hearts and cause us to be caught up with the loves of this world, the idols of amusement that take away our time in prayer so that we spend our time watching sports more than we do in prayer. 
idols of pleasure and many other things, take up people's lives so that they're in a world, in a shell of their own world, and have lost sight of reality and relationship and destiny and fellowship in their lives with God. They're only conscious of the immediate. And the church of Pergamos needed to overcome the stronghold of much marriage. That was where their battle was more than it was with resisting emperor worship, even though that was where Satan's seat was. But the reason his seat could be there was because of the compromise that was in the church through the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans that justified a false gospel of grace that compromised and ignored the holiness of God. Paul the Apostle said in the New Testament, therefore knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And many of us have lost sight of the holiness of God and therefore we cannot recognize the greatness of his mercy towards us and therefore we do not see the greatness of his love towards us because we've lost sight of the greatness of his mercy. And so when there is an adultery with the things of the world, it hardens our heart. And because there's a hardness in the heart, there is then a hardness in our relationships with one another, which increases the divorce rate in the church. I will give you some good news, that the people that have been saying that the divorce rate is just as high in the church as in the world is inaccurate. Those statistics were taken by interviewing people that only attend church once or twice a year when there's a special holiday. But those that actually attend church regularly, it has been discovered, only have a 10% divorce rate, and those that pray together, 7% or less. Nevertheless, God is calling his people to not be those that are living a life that is compromised with the deception of the spirit of uncleanness so that they are conquered by the enemy. I have had times in my prayer life or when I started out in prayer being a healthy young man still at my age of 65, because I know a lot about anti-aging medicine and live a healthy lifestyle, I'm still like a young man. I have had times when I can start prayer and I feel so weak. I feel so much in my flesh. I've even had times when I've been attacked with lustful thoughts as I began prayer and I've had to resist. But I can tell you this, my experience has been that as I humble myself under the mighty hand of God in my weakness and cry out to him, by the time that hour and a half prayer is finished, I am so caught up in the presence and glory of God that all those things have fallen off. And I've learned to walk by his grace in victory through bringing all of the way I am before him in humility, not holding back anything, being open to that two-edged sword of God, of who God is. That light that comes from God is that piercing light of the word of God in holiness and mercy that pierces, as it says in Hebrews 4.12, dividing even to the most inner thoughts and motives of our being so that we are brought to the place of humility and brokenness because God dwells in a high and lofty place, as it says in Isaiah, with those who are of a humble and a broken and a contrite spirit. 
The secret to abiding in the being of God is to always learn to be in that place of the fear of God, which is that choice to recognize God for who he truly is in his holiness and in his mercy, which is to recognize the love of God aright without seeing God as a dictator with a counterfeit holiness, or on the other hand, seeing God as a Santa Claus that condones all things, as a counterfeit grace gospel. God is calling his people today to wake up out of their sleep. And I now want to interject the book of Zechariah into this passage as a secret to overcoming so that we can receive the promise that is mentioned here in Pergamos, which is a promise I will go into a little later. So we will now turn to Zechariah 13. We'll read that passage. So I'm going to go back to Zechariah 13. Turning to Zechariah chapter 13. In verse 1 we read, In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. This is a prophecy of what will happen in the future to the nation of Israel in verse 1. A fountain will be opened. And that fountain is described in the previous chapter where it describes how Israel is surrounded by the nations and her military might is broken and she's cornered to a place of helplessness where she can only cry out to God. And I believe it's two-thirds of the city is taken captive, the city of Jerusalem. Or is it one-third? I've forgotten, but that's okay. In this chapter, two-thirds of the nation basically receives total destruction. Only one-third survives, Zechariah 13. But Jerusalem, I've forgotten. But it says there in Zechariah 12, they will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. They will experience a circumcision in their heart of the revelation of God's love when they see him who love them so much and recognize that he is indeed their Messiah, that his love was outpoured in his blood as a fountain so that they could be cleansed white as snow upon repentance and reception of his love to them in his atoning work on the cross where he absorbed our sin so that we could repent and have it taken from us and cleansed. And so in this verse here, it describes the fountain, which is the Lamb of God, that as it were was slain before the world was created as described in the book of Revelation. The, yes, and that's another topic. Yes, it was a reality just as real as if it had already happened before the world was created. That that was in the being of God that he was slain so that we could be reconciled to him. It was more than a capacity before the world was created. It was a reality in the being of God, and I don't have time to explain how that is so in this message. 
But in this passage of Zechariah chapter 1, I want to point out what the word uncleanness means. In the symbolic language, which gives even a greater meaning of the word uncleanness, you have two symbols. You have a symbol which is of a sprouted seed, which represents continuance going on, and you have the entrance into a door, and then continuance again. It's got the understanding, it means tossing. Tossing so that you back and forth and you eventually fall asleep. There's that understanding of it. And there's also the understanding of just a continual in and out. And that's what happens when there's uncleanness in our lives. We're trying to find fulfillment in the flesh. The Church of Pergamos was offered all of these temptations of fulfillment in the flesh. But all it does is it leaves one more and more empty, like a black hole in outer space. It just causes one to go into a greater desperation to find fulfillment and leave them even more empty. And it's in and out. And eventually a person is brought, as it, one of the words means tossing, in the sense of eventually you're totally asleep. And the word of God says, Awake thou that sleepest, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. And in Zechariah here, as we go on to read, we read this, And it shall come to pass, in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered, and I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. Now, this is written in the context of that time. And so there's certainly an understanding in this verse of prophets that were with an unclean spirit. They were false prophets. Maybe they were imitating Elijah as it's inferred later on where it says <clears throat> there will no longer be prophets that wear a rough garment to deceive. And so there was probably the reality of that in the time when the prophet Zechariah wrote this. But there's also been the reality of this unclean spirit in the land. See, Satan's seat was dwelling in Pergamos, and from that stronghold of sexual immorality and emperor worship, there was an uncleanness over the whole area to bring deception and a spirituality that was a false spirituality, where you could have people that were amazing that seemed like they were living a pure life, and yet they were filled with deception and false prophets. Or they were those that would justify immorality and demonstrate amazing supernatural abilities. And it says here in Zechariah that there will come a time when the Lord returns where, those, where this unclean spirit will be gone. And I will cause the prophets. These prophets will no longer be in the land of Israel, these false prophets. Nor will they be in the body of Christ at that time. And it shall come to pass that the body of Christ will be part of Israel, of course, as we as Gentiles are part of the commonwealth of Israel. There's one bride, not two brides. And it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, then his father and his mother that begat him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. 
and his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. Now that seems rather extreme, doesn't it? What the Lord is saying here is that in that time when he returns, people will have such a close relationship with him and such a love for him and a hate for what is contrary to who God is, what's contrary to his name. And when I say name, name has the understanding of expressing the essence of the reality of who one is to someone else. The word soul in the Hebrew means the reality and the conscience of who one is unto themselves, whereas the word name has the understanding of the reality of who one is as expressed outwardly to others. And so Jesus Christ is called the Word of God, and he is the very name of God expressed to us. The very being of God expressed to us is described in Hebrews 1.3. He is the full expression of the Father. But in this passage here, these people have such a close relationship with God that they would literally, if in a situation where their son was prophesying falsely out of an unclean spirit, kill him. Was that because they hated their son? No. It was love. Such a love for God. Remember, Phineas the high priest put the spear through those two people that came into the tent and were part of the cause of why thousands of them were dying of a plague. Likewise, in this passage here, these people had such a love for God and has such an identity, an intimate relationship, a fellowship with God, that their hate for what was contrary to love, who God is, for God is love, and their love for God, who is love, was so great that they would be moved to literally destroy anything that would in any way be in rebellion against that love if they didn't condone it, they would then be partakers of that rebellion. But they did this out of an innate, transformed, inner state of being. As it says in Hebrews concerning Christ, because thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity, therefore God, even thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. It is our conformity to the being of God's love which will not tolerate what is contrary to love out of his integrity and is transcended with mercy and grace out of that. It is our conformity that, to that being of God's love that brings the anointing, as described in Hebrews, so strong upon people. And this was the case with John the Baptist, who is said to be greater than any of the men of God that lived. He didn't do great miracles like Elijah, and yet he is considered greater because of his zeal and his love for righteousness and hate for iniquity. He was anointed with great power to preach powerfully the word of God so that multitudes were converted. 
And we continue on here and we read this. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophet shall be ashamed every one of his vision when he had prophesied, neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. Remember I mentioned that that was probably the context of what was happening at the time Zechariah was writing this. They had heard of the great mighty works of Elijah the prophet and were trying to imitate him and yet their lives had an uncleanness in it, a deception that reverted to justify those things that were immoral and impure before God. But he shall say, I am no prophet, I am a husbandman, for man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. There's going to be the kind of relationship in the millennial reign of Christ, of such an identity in, in a love relationship with God through the recognition of the atoning work of the Messiah that's described in Zechariah 12, where they will look on him whom they have pierced. That there is no desire to be in any way looked up to by people. And so there's no desire to have a tag put on people to be a prophet or anything else. There's only one desire, to be hidden in the secret place with God where no one can look up to you and where everyone only looks up to God because everyone is so in love with God they don't want anyone else to be seen with God. There's such a love for his love that is manifested in its glory. That they would prefer to say to people, I'm just a farmer. I was taught to just keep cattle from my youth. That's all. I'm nobody. I'm no prophet. I want to be a nobody because I just want to be walking close with God. I'm not interested in anyone looking at me at all. But he shall say that. And then it goes on and it says, And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thy hands? Then shall he answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Word of God says, Paul said this, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me when we've really seen the greatness of God's love to us, as Israel will see in the near future as a nation, where they will look on him and they will see the, the, wrist, the holes in the wrists of Christ are in his hands as he was pierced for them. There will be such a deep circumcision in their heart that they will literally wail and cry out of a true repentance and a joy to know that they can receive their Messiah and receive forgiveness. But these people have such a close identity in the atoning work of Christ that they're, as it were, feeling the very wounds in the hands of Christ and are identifying with how Christ was wounded in the house of his friends. They're so close in their intimacy with God that it's as if they are experiencing what Christ experienced about of being wounded in the house of his friends. And then there's a prophecy of what happened during the crucifixion of Christ in verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn my hand upon the little ones. And we know that's 
prophesying about when the disciples forsook Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. And what it's pointing out here is something of a process of what God allows to happen in order to bring us in to a purified state where this uncleanness is undone in people's lives and they are brought into a close and an intimate relationship with God. It is allowing that sword of the Spirit that I talked about that is described in Hebrews 4.12 and is what is described as in the first verse to the Church of Pergamos, where there's this sword that comes out of the mouth of Christ. It is this sword that God is allowing to pierce the heart. What did Christ say of Mary? She said a sword would pierce through her own heart and that the thoughts of many would be revealed. The sword of the integrity of God's love or his holiness and the mercy of God, including his grace, which reveals the greatness of his love, needs to circumcise our heart. Christ said in John that as I eat and live of the Father, so you need to eat and live of me. And he was describing how his body would be bread and his blood would be drank. And it is in our identity in that great and ultimate positive on the cross where God's love was poured out in his blood for you that we will find a circumcision in our heart. And it is in the way we receive Christ in the revelation of that that the word of God says we are to walk in him. It says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. That brings us in to a deep and an intimate relationship with God because it is in that identity with God which can only happen as there's a deep turning from the heart. And that only happens as we learn to come into the fear of God by waiting on God in prayer and curbing our own tendencies to be so presumptuous in the holiness of God that we mutter things that are foolish and silly as it says in his Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. When you go into the house of God, be more ready to be still and in awe of God than to sacrifice, than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. It is in waiting on God that we curb back our own self-initiated presumptions that get in the way of us beginning to reciprocate who God is to us. So as we spend time, quality time in prayer, and we begin to gaze with the eye of our heart and who God is in his love, we are brought into a place of brokenness and contrition and humility. And that's what breaks the veil in the heart. As it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, towards the end, whenever the heart shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. In the King James, it says, whenever it, but it's referring in the Greek to the heart. Whenever the heart shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Paul, the apostle's prayer and desire was that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we would know. And he goes on to describe 
knowing the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, and the greatness of his hope, and so on. God is calling us as his people to come to a place in our lives, and I will continue to read this in Zechariah here, where we experience a greater and greater intimacy of love for God so that there is nothing in this world that can becloud our heart with hardness. And if there is hardness, we need to focus on the ultimate negative and positive just as in electricity, it is the negative and positive that breaks the shell of the electrons that are spinning so fast and forming a hardness around the nucleus of the atom. So we, as we gaze upon who God is in his holiness and on the cross of Jesus Christ in his love, have the breaking of the hardness of our hearts and of the loves of this world into an intimacy with him that conquers the uncleanness, the delusions of this world. As it says in Jonah, it says, They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Do not be deceived by the lying vanities of this world. The enemy wants to corrupt us with the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans that comes through counterfeit teachings of a false grace gospel or counterfeit teaching, teachings of a legalistic message that views God as Cain viewed God as a dictator and lost sight of the goodness of God and of his goodness to, out of that holiness, bring mercy and forgiveness. It's too much to go into all of that in this message. As I continue on this passage, the disciples are going through a process of being scattered but it is through that process of denial that Peter went through that he was purified from his own self-righteousness into a pure and an intimate relationship of really knowing God. For all of his own self-trust and his righteousness was broken, which is a deception of self-worship. The Ten Commandments becomes an idol when our focus is on keeping the Ten Commandments rather than seeing the one behind the Ten Commandments and loving him so that out of that love for him, we more than fulfill the Ten Commandments. It was never God's intention that they would focus on their own righteousness via the Ten Commandments so that the Ten Commandments became a ground of idolatry in their heart by the deception of self-worship through focusing on the letter of the Ten Commandments rather than a relationship with God. And in this passage here, in Zechariah, as we continue to read it, it goes on to prophesy about the future that has not quite happened yet. It says there's going to come a time when Israel will have this happen. It shall come to pass that in the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but a third shall be left therein. So a third of Israel will survive this terrible attack in the last days. And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried and they shall call on my name and I will hear them and I will say, it is my people and they shall say, the Lord is my God. 
There is a process that God allows us as his people to go through, to break us from our own ways, even as Peter was broken from his. Even as Jacob was broken from his and was converted to have the name Israel, as he was facing the same dilemma, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble in the last days, and Jacob was about to face Esau, who he was convinced was ready to kill him and his family and children. And yet he didn't want to stay with Laban. He was too hungry to want for destiny of God in his life, to be satisfied with staying at ease. And so he was willing at least to step out. And as he stepped out to face his brother Esau, the angel of the Lord wrestled with him, which was the Lord himself. And Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And because he prevailed with God, because he refused to give up, he saw God, it says. He said, Pineo, I saw the face of God. And so the next day, as he's about to face Esau, and he knows he deserves judgment from Esau, he is facing Esau, and as it were, seeing God's judgment that is deserved on his life. And Esau comes to him and loves him and shows mercy to him and forgiveness because his heart is totally focused and, and relinquished to the mercy of God. And in his brokenness, and as he bows down, he receives the mercy of God. The same happened to the brothers that betrayed Joseph, which represents a type of Christ. They come before Joseph, who's Pharaoh of Egypt. And Joseph reveals himself to them, and he can't hold back the tears, and he says, I'm your brother Joseph. I'm the one that you sold as a slave. And he shows mercy to his brothers. And so God is wanting us to know the greatness of his holiness, out of which we can see the greatness of his love to us via his mercy, out of the holiness of God. And that comes out of the choice to fear God, which is a choice to humble ourselves and recognize God for who he truly is in his ultimate trustworthiness. Instead of being allowing the doubts of the enemy like Eve to enter us so that we do not perceive God as trustworthy in his holiness. And we buy into the lie of deception like Eve bought into the lie and like the church of Pergamos was being tempted to buy into the lie of the deception of the doctrine of Balaam. But what is God's promise for the church of Pergamos? As we go on to read, the Lord promises that if they repent, then he will stay as judgment. But if they don't, the sword that comes out of his mouth will fight against them. But if they overcome and repent, here's the promise. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he 
that receiveth it. This is speaking of a hidden bread, a bread of communion, a hidden intimacy of fellowship, as Christ described in John, of eating of his flesh and bread. But it also involves satisfaction. Bread brings satisfaction. It brings strength. And in communion with God, that inner core of our being that was created only for God is fully complete. When we go our own ways, there is the uncleanness that is like a black hole in outer space that can never be satisfied, where there's a going in and a going out, an attempt to find fulfillment in our lives that is continually tormenting, never satisfying. It is that spirit of uncleanness that is broken when we come to the place of bringing our weaknesses before God instead of hiding them, knowing that he will give us strength when we cry out with a broken heart to him. He will have mercy on us and change our lives so that we can have intimacy with him, even a white stone which speaks not only of purity, for it is out of purity that comes intimacy. Without purity, there is not intimacy. It is purity and relationship with God, living a holy life and a godly life that brings the promise of a white stone where our name, who we are in our being, is written. And that our being is so unique that no man knows that uniqueness but the one that receives it. The uniqueness of one's nature and being is known only unto themselves. There is an awareness of satisfaction not only in our identity with God, but our own identity within ourselves is so fulfilling and creative beyond what we've ever known. And that is the promise to those that overcome in the church of Pergamos. It is an intimate relationship with God out of the purity they will enter into by receiving the effectual work of the sword of the Spirit of God. The sword of the Spirit of God brings true repentance when we're open to the light of its reproof. But it also is the sword that comes out of the mouth of the Messiah in the last days in Revelations chapter 19 where it describes God's judgment upon the Antichrist armies. And it says this at verse 21 of Revelations 19. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Yes, the sword of the light of the Spirit of God is a spirit that will, it will judge the wicked, but it can also bring life to us. And when it brings life to us, then the sword of the light of God's Spirit can come forth from our mouths to bring light and life to others and to conquer the strongholds of darkness in our nation. God is calling his people in these last days to repent as corporate bodies of believers of the gods of amusement and of pleasure and of idleness. To repent 
of the hardness that is in our hearts, that has allowed us to be denominational, that has caused control in the churches, and great prayerlessness because of so many caught up with these gods of idleness, of amusement, that harden the heart and cause adultery towards the world that in turn causes adultery in relationships with one another so that there's people that are divorcing one another. It is time to break up the fall of ground for the coming of the Lord is far nearer than you realize. We need to start our church services on our faces before God and get the whole congregation on their knees and on their faces before God. You don't need pre-service prayer meetings. Make the church his house of prayer again. And when your heart is before God in awe and you are conscious that he is in your midst as a congregation, out of that brokenness and repentance and humility will come great revelation, great creativity. The gifts of the Spirit will move through the body. Leadership should never hinder the Holy Spirit moving through the body of Christ. Let the valleys be raised up and the mountains brought down. As Paul the Apostle said, there, that he temp has tempered the body so together so that more abundant honor is given unto the part that lacks, so that there should be no schism in the body of Christ. In other words, when control is let go of by the leadership and they facilitate and encourage the gifts of the Spirit to operate in the body of Christ by starting the meeting in fellowship with God through humility and prayer, God can pour a greater gift on those that are not looked up to very highly so that it humbles those that tend to be looked up to in the natural, which undoes pride. Because by pride comes contention. Pride is the root of denominationalism. It is the root of control and division. And it is broken when we humble ourselves as a body and allow that new order which is under the headship of Christ to come down in its fullness into our denomination so that we're no longer denominational. Into our gathering so that we become a touchdown for the glory of God as Jacob's ladder, a touchdown onto that stone that will issue forth the glory of God and his presence so strong in an area that that area will come under the permeation of God's convicting presence because the spirit of uncleanness will be broken over the area even as it was in the Welsh Revival, where even the football games and all those things were shut down, and all the places where people drank all alcohol, they were all shut down, as that whole area was permeated by the presence and power of God. How much more in these last days do we need to cry out to God to conquer our nation, wherever God has placed us? And the way we conquered is by becoming the touchdown the touchstone for the glory of God as a corporate body in our community. And then going forth from there in the Spirit of God to show forth His glory because we are carriers of His glory. This is God's strategy for the last days. For the Lord says, truly as I live, says the Lord, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. 
there will come a time where we will see shocking and great judgment. Don't be surprised if China and Russia attack the United States in the near future. It's said in Fox News the other day, yesterday, that, or was it two days ago, that the Chinese and Russian will have superior jet power and superior jets than the U.S. in five, three to five years. It wasn't five years. I think it was three to five, possibly, but five years for sure. I can't go into all of that for time or this message is going to be too long. We need to wake up. Awake thou that sleepest, arise from the dead. Arise from your sleep and enter into your destiny. God has something far more fulfilling for you than this world. Why would you hold on to that? Let go and let God have his way. Begin to change your ways and set aside time at any price, even if it means losing your job, in order to have the time with God. For he will provide your needs if you trust him. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Do not allow this world to entangle you so that you cannot spend time with God. God bless you. And may this message in regards to the church of Pergamos impact your lives so that you turn to him with all your heart. Thank you for listening to this message.